loving Father, this morning, we want to see Jesus. We want to see Jesus perhaps in a way we've never seen Him before. Speak to us through Your Word. And touch Your people's hearts here this morning as we seek Jesus' face. In His name we pray. Amen. Amen. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel according to John. We're going to John chapter 9. John chapter 9 is a very familiar story that you have encountered, you have read, but today we will put flesh and bone to a story that up until now has just been black ink on white paper. There's a, a few elements of this story that I want to highlight and I want to bring out. We're going to be here till about 1.30, just letting you know. Is that okay? <laughs> Until we smell food. Okay, that's fine enough. I'm starting to smell it already. So please put the fans that way. All right, just <laughs> I'm starting to smell. That's not a good thing. We're in John chapter 9. Listen to what it says here, beginning in verse 1. Now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man that was what, everyone? Blind from when? birth. Let's not pass these details by so quickly. This is a man. This is not a child. This is not a teenager. This is not a mere adolescent. This is a man. Let's give this man an age, an approximate age. Do we have an age? What, what, what would you guys say? 5, 20, 30, 40, 50? How old do you think this man is? 30s, early 30s. Okay, do I have early 30s? 35, 36, 35, 35, 35, 35, 35. between 35 and 40, 45, 45, 45, 50. Let's say he's 35 years old. Is that fair? 71, okay. That's a, that's a mature man. He's a senior man, right? Hey! This is a man. He's at least 35 years old. That means... He's lived 35 plus years not being able to see anything. He's not played baseball with his friends. He's not seen the waves and, and, and the beach. He's not seen birds flapping their wings in the, 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 the blue skies. He's never even been able to behold his own mother's face. 35 plus years walking down the paths of life, not able to see anything. Can you imagine what that must have been like? Now I'm going to ask, how much of your life has been determined by your sight? I'm going to ask husbands, let me hear you say amen. Husbands. Alright, that's three proud husbands. Let's try this again. If you want to eat. Tonight. Yeah, you'll eat now. That might be the last meal you get. Husbands, let me hear you say amen. amen. All right, that's a little more prideful. That's good. That's good. Ladies, we're working on them, okay? Husbands, I, I want to ask you a question, and I want you to realize that we are in church. This is a holy place. We are where? In church. Holy place. Here's the question. What was the first thing that attracted you to your wife? We are in church. Her looks. That's very PC. That's very politically correct. That's very good. I love that, John. Her love. Her love. What was the first thing that attracted you to your wife? Oh, now you guys are quiet. She, huh? She was a good cook? That was the first thing that attracted you to her. (laughs) 
<laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I love it. Hey, they, hey, that saying is, is, is very much true. The way to a man's heart is through, obviously. I love Pastor Zach's mild answer. And it's interesting because I know the sincerity in that, in that first attraction. You know what he said about his wife Leah? Her love for Jesus. That is beautiful. That is beautiful. But the first thing that generally attracts us is something that has to do with our eyes. This man has walked the paths of life without the ability to appreciate life as God ordained it to be. And as they walk in, notice verse 2. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned? Whose fault is this? Who is responsible for this man's blindness? This man or his parents that he is born blind? His parents. You think his parents? I, I, how many options do, do the disciples give Jesus? Two. Two options. Let's unpack them just briefly. If this man sinned, that means one of two things. Either he committed a sin so bad in the womb that God had to punish him. When he was born. Because he was born already blind. Or God must have known that he was going to commit such a heinous sin. That God punished him before he was born. So that he couldn't do it. I mean I, you can take this as far as you, as, as, as you possibly can in your imagination. To try and, and conjecture how in the world the disciples would even present that as an option. Or a, a, an explanation for this man's blindness. Number two, his parents. In other words, God must have punished him or may have punished him for something he had nothing to do with. Something his parents did. In those two options, in those two choices, the disciples are actually questioning God. They're questioning God's character. They're questioning how God deals with sin. How God punishes. How God castigates. How God either rewards or punishes. This is a human tendency to think this way. You see, for the disciples, when, when they would see a man that was wealthy, uh, see him healthy and, and, and prosperous man, they would look at him and say, God has blessed him. He is favored of God. He is a righteous man. But on the contrary, on the flip side, if they seen someone that, was, that was, uh, uh, had unfortunate upbringing, was, 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 was steeped in poverty, was you know, uh, plagued by, by disease and by sickness and illness, then this person is gravely punished by God. That's a human tendency. How often and how quick we are to question God and to, and, to, and to accuse God for all the bad that happens. How often do you hear, why did God take my son? Why did God take my husband? Why did God allow these things to happen? And we don't realize that God had nothing to do with it. We accuse God of what the devil does. And we give the devil credit. For what God does. Oh yeah. You guys remember some years ago that miracle on the Hudson. It was a U.S. Airways flight that was taking off from LaGuardia. And as it was leaving, as it was taking off from LaGuardia there in New York City, two birds knocked out their engine. Do you remember that? You probably have seen the movie already. Captain Sully landed that plane safely in the Hudson. Now, if you've never been to New York, you don't, big deal. Or, well, that's America. Well, if you've been to New York 
And if you've flown from LaGuardia, I've flown, left from LaGuardia more times than I can even remember. And now that when I go down those parts of the, the country, I pray, Lord, get those birds out of the way. But what a miracle that was to land that aircraft in the Hudson. And I remember how Fox News and CNN and even MSN was there. MSNBC was there. And they were all with their cameras and their microphones as people were coming out of the wing. And they were asking, how do you feel to have survived such a, such a, 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 a heroic rescue? And, and, and every single one of them would say, oh, we were, guess what? Lucky. We were so lucky. That's a slap in God's face. God, the Bible tells us that every good and perfect gift comes from where? From God, from above. If there's any good that comes, if there's any uh, good fortune, or not even fortune, it's, it's not luck, it's called blessing. God has looked upon you, has smiled. There is no, su- there's no such thing as coincidence. There is super califragilistic, espialidocious moments don't really exist. God blesses. The devil is the one that comes. The thief comes only but to kill, steal, and destroy. Jesus has come that we might have life and might have it more abundantly. The disciples don't understand that. Jesus is trying to break past all these misconceptions, all these, these erroneous ideas of the character of Jesus. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. And Jesus wants to show this experience to show God's love. Verse 3, John chapter 9, verse 3, Jesus answered, Neither has this man sinned nor his parents. Your two options are wrong. But that the works of God should be revealed in him, I must do the works of him that hath sent me while it is day. The night cometh where no man can work. While I am in the world, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now we get to verse 6. Now, up until verse 6, Jesus and the disciples are having this dialogue, but they're not next to this blind man. They're not asking. I mean, the disciples, Peter is not next to Jesus. Hey, Lord, who sinned? Him or his parents? They're not talking right next to him. They're afar off. They're seeing. They're observing him. Begging for, for food. But now, when we get to verse 6, notice what happens. When he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay. Your King James might say spittle. That's interesting. Made clay with a saliva. And then Jesus does something absolutely bizarre. What does the Bible say that Jesus do, d- did? Mm. It says this, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. I just think about this. The blind man is probably somewhere in the city. He, he's, he's probably lying down. He's got his tin can. And he's like, please, money for the blind. Money for the blind. Someone, please. And people are passing by. And they know this man. They've seen him for years. They've known him since he's been little. Now, Jesus finishes talking with the disciples. And then he steps away. And as he's walking towards this blind man, he kneels down. And he takes some dirt, and then he spits on the dirt. I'm not going to do that. I did worship this week, and the, the, the children told me that pastor had a week of prayer the week before, shared the same story, and actually pr- spit on accident, right? <laughs> so I'm going to refrain from spitting on accident. I just threw you under the bus. I did. I did. <laughs> I did. Well, you know, I just want you to know that uh, we pastors sometimes slip up too. <laughs> and as Jesus spits on the clay, he makes his way to the blind man. 
Now the blind man can see, can sense when someone is coming close. And so as he's there, he can sense someone coming closer. So I imagine he lifts his hand a little higher to make it easier for someone to drop money in the can. But instead of feeling the coins falling, he feels cold, moist, muddy hands. <laughs> Jesus puts mud, puts the clay on his eyes. Now, ladies, how would you feel if someone put mud on your face? <laughs> I love what you say. We do it all the time. <laughs> And you actually pay to have it done. I anyway, I love it. Verse 7 is really a shocker. And I don't want you to miss this. Now Jesus puts mud on his face. And notice all Jesus tells him. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. That's it. That's all we have that Jesus tells the blind man. Now, is there something strange in verse 7? Is there something strange about that? Is there anything that, that, that you're like, whoa, wait a minute. Hell, that's not right. Is there anything that kind of seems out of place? Maybe something a little bit crude. Anything? Say that louder, Pastor. He didn't tell him. Jesus... Notice what he doesn't say. What does Jesus not tell him? He doesn't tell him where it is. But even greater than that, what else does Jesus not say? Exactly. Jesus does not tell this blind man why he should go to the pool of Siloam. Jesus doesn't tell him the end result. Jesus doesn't introduce himself. Hey, listen, my name is Jesus. I am the Son of God, would you like to see? I mean, he's gone to some end of time. Would you like to see? Would you like to be healed? How can I if someone doesn't? Jesus does not tell this man, doesn't introduce him, and doesn't tell him why he needs to go. But even more than that, the man is blind. He is what? So he can't see. And Jesus tells him, Go. Exactly. See, you're, you're picking up what, what Jesus is throwing down right there. The man is blind and Jesus is telling him to go. If you were watching this interaction, if you were there and you'd see Jesus put clay on this blind man's face who you've known is blind, and Jesus just tells him, hey, go wash in the pool of Siloam, you would probably be like, man, that's rude. You know, if, the, the, the least that you could do is take him. You know, come here, stand up. Hold on my uh, 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 elbow or shoulder and, 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 and let me take you. I'm going to be discreet so no one knows that I'm doing this, okay? We're going to turn left. Turn left now, now, now. Okay, now kneel. We're here at the pool of Siloam. Will you kneel? Give me your hand. Give me your hand. Touch the water. There you go. Wash. Clean. Wouldn't that be what Jesus should have done to the blind man? See, sometimes you and I might need something from God. We might have a prayer request, and, and that need might be great, and, and we're, we're just pleading, God, do this, or God, please perform that. And we don't realize that God is ready to do it, but we just need to go. We need to do something. We can't just sit there. This blind man, if there was anyone at any time that had an excuse that could that could logically and reasonably say i'm sorry lord i can't if there was someone that says i'd like to but i'm limited i can't I, i you know there's obstacles i could fall in a hole i could trip on a rock i could bump into a wall i don't know where it's at i need someone to take me if anyone could have just been justified in saying i can't this blind man could have been amen yes or no 
Are you with me? Are you following me? But notice the second part of verse 7. Just after Jesus tells them, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. Notice what it says, last part. So he went and washed and came again how? Seeing. I don't know how this man got there. I don't know who helped him. I don't know the details of, of, of that. I will see that, you know, when we get to God, to, to heaven, God flicks, you know, I'm going to see rent that DVD, 4K, HD, hologram, whatever it comes in. I'm, I want to see that experience when this blind man, something in Jesus' voice, something in, 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 with the touch of Jesus on his face, something let him know, I need to get to this pool of Siloam. I don't care how, I don't care who helps me, but somebody has to help me. This blind man made it to the pool of Siloam, and you can just imagine, he didn't know what was, what was going to happen. He didn't know he was going to be cleansed. He didn't know he was going to be healed. When he's finally there, and he kneels down, and he finally puts his water for the very first time in that pool, or maybe not the first time, but he brings it to his face. You know, mud, by this time, the clay has dried on his face. By this time, it's, it's, it's not just going to come off easily. He's going to be there for a minute, wiping everything off, and he better make sure he doesn't leave one little grain. Because if that gets in your eyes, have you ever had that in your eye before? Oh, man. Have you had an eyelash in your eye? Oh, that's a pain. I mean, this, this man is making sure that every last grain is gone. And then he opens his eyes for the very first time in his life. He can see. And he probably can see his own reflection in the water. Like, can you just imagine what that experience was like? What a powerful story. But what would have happened if he would have said, no, I can't. What would have happened if he would have said, listen, I, I, I can't go unless somebody takes me. What would have happened if he said, who are you? Why should I go? We don't have any evidence of this man questioning. And because of his faith, because of his determination to fulfill the explicit command of Jesus... He received his sight. What a wonderful story. But pastor, those are, that, that, that's a story 2,000 years ago. God doesn't work like that today. Really? Let me tell you. That's not at all true. It was October 7th, 1970, when I was born. On the island of Cuba, I was born with blue eyes. Blue eyes like the sky. Now, you can imagine my father had a few questions for my mama. <laughs> After working through that marital counseling and all kinds of things, they... Blue eyes kind of runs in my family. My grandfather has blue eyes. My son has blue eyes. I don't know if any of you seen him when he was here about two, two, three weeks ago. My son has blue eyes, but I had blue eyes. I mean, very blue, like the sky. My parents didn't know initially that I was blind. It took a couple of weeks before my mother was very concerned, and she took me to a doctor there in Cuba. But how do you examine an infant? How many fingers do I have? What letter is that? How do you examine an infant? So the doctor takes me into the examination room. He turns off the lights. He closes the blinds, shuts the door, and he takes out a match. He puts the match in front of me and goes side to side. If I can see anything, I'm going to see that, that light in the dense darkness. He does other exams, but it doesn't take him long to conclude, ma'am, I am so sorry. Your son is completely blind. There's nothing modern science. There's nothing we can do for him. Go and give him the best life you possibly can. That was devastating to my mother. That day she goes to my grandfather's house there in the city of Camagüey, And she 
with tears, agony. Tells him the bad news. My grandfather was a, a mighty man of faith. He was an evangelist. He was a coal porter. He was a minister. He, just a, just a, a, a powerful servant of God. And he told me this before even he passed. He says, Eddie, I remember telling your mother, my daughter, I don't know why God has allowed Eddie to be born blind. I don't know why God has chosen this path for Eddie and for us. But I know that God's promises are true. I know that God's word is faithful. And God's word doesn't lie when, he, when it says in Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good to those who love the Lord and are called according to His purpose. You know, and gave my mother quite a few other words of encouragement and that helped, but it didn't improve anything immediately. Months pass, about a year passes. And our church there in the city of Camagüey had a week of prayer. And in front of the church, right here, or right around here, right before the platform, they had what is like a communion table. It probably was the communion table. I remember when I was little still seeing that. I remember that church still to this day. It, there was a communion table on here, and on top of the communion table, they had taken a box, and they had made it into a form of a church. It had a little opening on the front top, and in front it had stacks of papers and a box of pencils. Do you know what that box was for? prayer requests. Every night, the guests and members would come and they would take pieces of paper, they would write their prayer requests, and they would deposit it into that box. At the end of the week of prayer, there was a solemn ceremony out in the courtyard of the church where there was, there, there, there was, there was elevating music and powerful testimonies and a stirring message. And at the end, they would take that box, the pastor and the elders, they would have a special prayer consecration and of petition and then the the pastor would light that box on fire and that box would burn as a symbolic gesture of the prayers of the saints ascending to heaven i would love to tell you that the moment that that box caught on fire and the and the flames started to rise and the smoke started Below, and it, it reached the clouds. I'd love to tell you that there was a, a, a great earthquake and thunder and lightning. And I jumped from the stroller and, and said, I could see. I wish I could tell you it was that dramatic. But actually that day nothing happened. In fact, that week nothing happened. The next week, nothing happened. And my mother had a bad habit of coming in every night and checking on my brother, older brother and I, just to make sure that we were fast asleep. So she would come in after we were supposedly asleep. I was, what, 14 months old? My brother was almost four years old. She would come in and she would turn on the light and just look and make sure that uh, we were okay. We would sleep in mosquito nets. So there were, she would make sure that there, weren't, there wasn't any mosquitoes in the nets or any scorpions or spiders or any other little creatures. She'd turn off the light and go to sleep. But this night she comes in and she turns on the light. And she notices that I look up at the light. She's like, no. She turns off the light. She waits a little while, turns off the light. I look at the light. She turns off the light, waits a little while, turns on the light. I look at the light. She does that for about 20, 30 minutes. Pray for me. I'm still going through therapy. My mom couldn't believe it. That next day, guess where she's at? That very doctor that had pronounced me blind for life. And that doctor is an atheist communist doctor there in Cuba. And he's, he sees her. He's like, How, what, what, what can I help you? She's like, no, no, you don't understand. You've got to check my son. Ma'am, I've already checked your son. No, no, something has happened. Please. And who tells a Cuban? No, hold on. Who tells a woman no? A mother. Yeah, beware. This doctor finally, finally obliges, takes us back into the 
examining room, turns off the light, closes the blinds, closes the doors, complete darkness. Now he gets high tech. He doesn't use a match. He took out a flashlight. And before he's aiming the flashlight at my eyes, my mother tells me that I was trying to grab the flashlight. He's going back and forth. He does other exams and then he cannot believe what he's experiencing. He knew I was blind and here I am a year later and I can clearly see. He accuses my mom of having taken me to one of the santeros. That's a witch doctor there in Cuba. In Cuba, there's a religion that the communism has no problem with. It's santeria. Santeria is a mixture of African voodoo and Catholicism. There's an, animal rituals and spells and enchantments and witches and, and, and ceremonies and animal sacrifices, all kinds of craziness. You don't want to know much more than that. But it is a very diabolical, demonic religion. And it is real. And the doctor had accused my mom of taking me to one of these witch doctors. Giving the credit to the devil for what God did. And my mom ran a risk. Because if she testifies of the love and the power of God to this communist doctor, she runs the risk of being incarcerated for who knows how long. My mother couldn't keep it in. I don't know what happened to that doctor. I don't know if I will see him in the kingdom. I hope so. I hope that that stayed so engraved in his mind that it led him to the feet of Jesus. But I was 14 months old. I'm starting to smell, so let me, let me, let me wrap it up. Let me not wrap it up. There's too many details. I, I, I do want to let you know that I was too young to remember that. Young person, listen to me. We left Cuba when I was six in 1980. You figure it out. When we went to, we went to Spain, and when, I, when we were in Spain in 1980, I became the neuro-ophthalmologist sensation there in Europe. It came to, to examine me in, in, in Madrid, and, and, and I became a test tube baby, and I didn't really understand what was happening some while later we moved to new york and to come to the united states and now i'm america's sensation and now the best of the best from all the east coast corridor start to examine me and i'm going to this doctor and i'm going to this place and i'm going to that and finally we find that the best ophthalmology at that time was kellogg eye center in at the university of michigan and ann arbor so we moved to michigan but by the time I was 12 years old, I had had enough with all of these tests. When you would go to an eye doctor, when you were examined, you are, you are examined, it's probably a half hour, no more than an hour. When I go to eye doctors, it's one or two days of exams. Brutal, excruciatingly painful exams. I'll give you a, a, an example of one of them. How long do you think you can keep your eyes open without blinking? Let's try it. I guarantee you, you can't last more than 30 seconds. 40 seconds. Maybe if you're good. A minute. Oh, I can't do it. Well, I, they would, I would have to have my eyes open for up to an hour without blinking. So how would they do that? I'm glad you asked. They would take these contact lenses with lips on them. They were hard. They're hard plastic but they would put that and they would put my eyelids over the little lids so that I couldn't blink as much as I tried. And they would put goop, this gel, in my eyes to keep them hydrated and, and, and moist. But the reason why they would do that is because they would put my head in this tube where they would, they would flash bright, beams of light for up to 10 minutes at a time just things brighter than the sun and you're looking at these things because they're taking pictures of the back of your nerves optic nerves and all there i mean this is just excruciating you guys it's more painful you can't even imagine just think of looking at the sun 10 times stronger for an hour or the half hour, or long, time, long periods of time. It was excruciating. They still have to do that from time to time to us. But 
those kinds of exams. They've connected me to machines. They put cables behind my eyes and connected me to kinds of things to, to examine how it is that I see. When I was 12 years old, at that last visit there at the University of Michigan, I begged my parents never to take me back. It was so painful. I would have headaches for days. I would beg my parents, please don't let me come back. And when I was 12, my mother was so touched by the pain that she seen me in. She says, okay, son, we won't make you go back. You'll go back whenever you feel it necessary. I was 12 years old. At 13 years old, we moved to a different neighborhood and I went to a different school. One day, I was there in the bathroom of the school and I was doing some funny things with my mouth in the bathroom and it caught the attention of some kids. I was in the bathroom doing things like... All kinds of different beats and... It just has been a long time. In fact, I'm not going to do it. The, the point is, I would do some crazy things with my mouth. And, and there were some young people that were like, whoa. So at 13, I joined a rap group. We were called the Bass Boys. We started to perform little things and it grew and grew and grew. And I got into DJing. I would take your old records and I would put them on Technique 2000 turntables. And I would... And, and, and from there I went into a world of hip-hop and R&B and all kinds of other music and producing. But that led me to a world of drugs and alcohol and everything in between and beyond. When I was 15, we, we needed a new rapper. And we were interviewing. We were auditioning some, some, some guys from different places. And I remember one, how can I forget? He came, he's like, yo, what's up? My name's Jamal and I'm an atheist. And I thought, huh, yo, what's up? My name's E, and I'm Cuban. Yeah, 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 you're atheist. You're from Athens. I'm Cuban. I'm from Cuba. That's what I thought at 15 and 18. I didn't know what an atheist was. I was was clueless to all of that. But it didn't take long. He would see me. He would observe me. By this time, my vision had improved substantially. I could practically see well, except I couldn't see at night. I could never, I've never been able to see in the dark anything. You turn out the lights and I'm done, I'm done, you know. But he would notice at parties and at different places by the time I was driving, he was like, hey, Eddie, how come you don't drive at night? So one day we're at this place and he's like, yo, Eddie, come here. Man, you got to tell me something, man, and, and, and you can't lie to me. I've been noticing this and this and this and this and that. I noticed that you have a hard time seeing in the dark. What's up? Are you blind? And I was in a lifestyle, I was in a world that I didn't need anybody knowing that I had any kind of weakness. That would not go well. So I would, up to then, I thought I was managing well. You know, when it was night, I knew I couldn't drive, so I'd always supposedly have too much drink and you drive my car. Or I would be in different situations. When I was at parties, when I, was a, I would always be in the DJ booth and people would be around me. I would try to avoid compromising situation so no one could tell but Jamal was very observant and I couldn't avoid it this time so it was just he and I and I was like yeah Jamal you know uh, reality is yeah I have a hard time seeing in the dark but hey man listen I was born blind and God gave me the sight I have and here I am he's like and when I said that it's like I stepped on the brakes going 200 miles an hour he's like wait 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 you you mean to tell me you're one of them Christians And I was not living like a Christian, so I wasn't going to claim that. So I just said, well, that's what my parents told me. Wait a minute, Eddie. Wait, 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 wait. You mean to tell me your parents told you that God is giving you your sight? Yeah. So you mean to tell me that, okay, let me see if I got this straight. You believe in an all-powerful God, right? Yes. You believe in a God that healed you, that you were born blind but did this miracle in you, and now you could see? Yes. And your God is a God of love, right? Yes. And your God makes no... He's just perfect, right? Yes. Okay, Eddie, then explain to me this. How come you can't see at night? How come you still have problems seeing this and this this and that? Isn't your God powerful enough to have given you your entire vision? How come you still have challenges? 
Your parents have lied to you. Religion is for weak people. It's an invention of, of man to control the masses. God doesn't exist. And let me tell you, there's a saying in Spanish, Dime con quien andas y te diré quien eres. I thought Leo would help me on that one, but where are you, Leo? There you are. You didn't know that one, did you? You did have it. Okay, all right. Well, I'll forgive you then. And the, here's the translation. Tell me who you're hanging out with, and I'll show you who you are. And so I, at first, resisted that belief. But it wasn't long before I started to question if God had ever healed me to begin with. I questioned it to the point that I came to the conclusion that my parents had lied to me. God never performed a miracle in my life. The sight I have was whatever I had, and God was a lie. My parents are living a lie. Everyone that believes in God is believing a lie. The success that I had and that I was looking forward to was going to come because of the talent we had, not because of God. And so it was easier for me to live a life of sin than uh, rejecting the existence of God than to recognize that God existed and yet live so far from His will. So it was not hard for me to turn my back on God. And by the age of 16, I stopped praying. I stopped identifying as an Advent, much less an Adventist, not even a Christian. I was, I was just, God doesn't exist. And I lived that way for 10 years, far from God. I'm not going to get into the details because many times when we give our testimonies, we, we glorify the life we used to have. I don't glory in nothing. The, the, the devil stole from me and robbed me of the vigor, the vitality, and the sight that I had. What do I mean? Let me fast forward to 1999. Some traumatic things happened in 19, finished last part of 1998 and early part of 1999. The, the, the biggest crisis that confronted that I confronted was the death of my my father some of you last night were here and you heard a little bit of that testimony the stress and the guilt and the shame from that ordeal brought such high stress I nearly lost all of my sight in a matter of four or five months all my sight in 99 I thought oh no what's going on I went from driving running my business being fully independent producing playing sports going grocery shopping to not even able to watch television to not even able to walk down the street by myself my eyes started to shake violently they still somewhat do today but they would shake violently non-stop my eyes would be doing this acute severe chronic nystagmus and my eyes it was just horrible everything was just blurry I couldn't I went into a depression and then, all the th and then I thought, oh no, I have a brain tumor. I'm going to die at whatever moment. And people would tell me, go to the doctor, see what's wrong, see if there's any help. And I didn't want to go to the doctor because everyone at that time that found out they had a cancer, they were dead in three months. And so I would resist until it got way too bad. I couldn't handle it anymore. I couldn't do anything. I literally couldn't function. I went to, into a depression that... Seldom someone does. The thoughts you can only imagine. So finally, it was about July of 1999. I make an appointment to just an ophthalmologist there, an optometrist, whatever, in, in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And, and I go in there, and five minutes into the visit, the doctor's like, listen, Mr. Perez, I don't even know where to start to examine your, your case. Your, your eyes are so complex. There's only one place I know that you can go to that you might be able to find some, some reasons, some, uh, some, some, some understanding of what's going on. I'm like, what place is that? And he tells me, Kellogg Eye Center, University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. And I'm thinking, oh, no. That's the last place I was tortured that I swore I would never go back. He's like, Eddie, I, 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 I don't know what your experience is, but that's the only place that you can go and hopefully find out something. He says, I don't know. It might take over a year for them to see you. They're backed up for over a year, a year and a half. He called that day. And the moment that he got in and they found out that it was because of me, they gave him... A, they gave me an appointment. This was July. They gave me an appointment for October 30th, that same year. He's like, this is a miracle. 
They'll see you in like three months. Yeah, that's a good thing. Believe me, I know. So I make my way. Finally, it comes to October 30th, 1999. My life is meaningless. I have no career. I have no business. I have, everything has just been put on hold. Life is miserable and depressing and truly hopeless. I asked my mother to take me to that visit. And so we have a three-hour drive from Grand Rapids to Ann Arbor. And I'm, I'm an atheist on my way there. I don't pray to God. I don't ask God. I'm just fearing that I'm, I have a tumor and I'm going to die at any moment. I get, get to the visit. And I'm finally there in the examination room and the doctor comes in. Don't recognize him. He starts to examine me and not even five minutes into the visit, he, he rolls back in his doctor's chair. He's, he's, he scratches his head and he's like, Mr. Press, please wait here. I'll be right back. I need to go find someone. There's someone that I need to come and examine you. I'll be right back. Please don't go away. And, and, and I'm seeing him. I'm like, Whoa, okay. He's, he's, he's a little shaken up. I'm not going anywhere, sir. Not even five minutes later, He comes in with another doctor, taller than him, behind him. And that second doctor, when he comes in, he looks to the right and he sees my mother sitting. He's like, hey, Rebecca. And my mother's sitting there and she looks at him. She's like, Paul. And I'm in the examining chair like, how in the world y'all two know each other? Mom, don't tell me he has anything to do with my blue eyes. She looks at me and she's like, no, Eddie, this is Dr. Paul Sievings. He's the last scientist that examined you when you were here when you were 12. And it's like I seen the face of Dracula right there or Frankenstein. I'm scared because this is the guy that tortured me when I was 12. And now I'm 26 years old and I'm a man and I'm a little bigger than I am than I am. Yeah, a little bigger than I am right now. And I look at him and I remember looking at him and I'm like, what's up? You know, basically letting him know I'm not 12 years old, man. (laughs) You're not going to do something. I'm not going to let you. He comes in and he's got a stack of papers this thick. They're called blue notes. This thick in his hand. And he looks at me. He's like with a smile. Eddie, I'm so glad to see you. I've been waiting for you for so long. Oh, man, it was. I wanted to run from that visit. I was afraid. He comes in and he starts to examine me. Now, in a doctor's visit, in an ophthalmology visit in that kind of place is a very intimate affair. Very up close and personal. Here's what I mean. I put my face on these devices here, right? And I'm there. The doctor is literally right here as well. Like, my face is here and he's here. And he's like, Eddie, look up. Look down. Look over here. Open wide. Hold it. You know, I, I, I'm so close to him. We're so intimate. I can literally hear his thoughts. I know exactly what he ate three days ago. <laughs> Very close and personal. And, 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 and I'm hearing him when he says, Eddie, look up to the right. Hmm. Okay, look down. Uh-oh. Look over here. And I'm thinking, when I'm hearing him say these, oh, uh uh-oh. I'm like, does this brother know I could hear him? And then it sinks in on me. Oh, no. He found the tumor. As if you could see it through the eye. I'm thinking, oh, no, I'm just going to die here. This is bad. This is really, really bad. He does more exams. He's shines lights and does some things and then he turns to the to to my blue notes and it's as if he's looking for something that he he knows is there but he can't find it and finally he finds it and he's looking he's and he's doing these jests like he is just worried petrified and i'm even more worried and now it feels i'm i'm thinking oh no I'm going to, I literally thought I was going to die very soon. And I, I just asked him, I said, doctor. And by this time, my eyes feel like they're just going to 
burst with tears in my nose and my voice is almost cracking. And I asked him, I said, doctor, I need to know. I can take it. How bad is it? And he puts everything down. And then he's in that, that doctor's chair with the wheels. He rolls about eight feet, seven, eight feet from me. And he does this. Eddie, what did I do? I said, you extended your arms. Now, Eddie, what am I doing? What am I doing, Eddie? Eddie, what am I doing? I'm like, you're waving your head. And my brain sometimes works fast. Not all the time, but this time it did. It worked fast. I'm thinking, I know it's been like 14 years since I last been here. But I know that medicine and technology tends to progress and improve and, and advance. But these exams seems like we're going back in time to like the Flintstone ages. These aren't scientific exams. I'm like, you're waving your hands, but Doc, what is it? Eddie, what did I do? You touched your nose, but Doc, what is it? Now I'm mad because I've asked you like five, six times. You don't answer me. And when I ask him, the doctor, Paul Sevings, I think Paul E. Sevings, he later became the, the, the chair of the National Eye Institute in Bethesda, Maryland. I think he's deceased now. I don't know. But he, he literally loses, loses it. He's like, Eddie, and he's talking 100 miles an hour. Eddie, I cannot explain it. I cannot explain what in the world is going on. When you were here, when you were here, when you were 10, when you were 11, when you were 12, I couldn't explain how you could see. Pause. I had never heard that before other than my parents. He couldn't explain how I could see. He says, but look, I'm examining your eyes how they are now. I'm examining from all the tests and all the MRIs and the different CAT scans and all the things that we've done when you were last here. Eddie, your eyes, your optic nerves are dead. Eddie, you're not supposed to see me. Eddie, you're supposed to be blind. There's no way I can explain how you can see that I have my arms extended, that I'm waving them, that I'm my nose. And I'm literally there like, what in the world did he just say? Wait, 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 you mean to tell me I'm not supposed to see? He goes, no, Eddie, and he goes to try to explain how it is that I can see. Look, Eddie, your optic nerves, think of that like in a projector, like a bulb, and it's projecting the image on the screen. The screen is kind of like the retina, but it's inverted, okay? The, the, the images come in through your eye, they reflect on the, on the retina, go back through the optic nerve, the optic nerve translates it into neurological signals that goes back to your visual cortex back here. Here's where you process vision, here's where you can see, really, your eyes are just cameras, but your optic nerve, that means that light bulb, that means that translator, the thing that sends the neurological impulses to your brain that's dead that's there's a disconnection between your eyes and your brain but you're able to see and I'm blown I'm just blown away I, I, don't, I don't recall anything of the visit from that moment on I don't recall him, I don't even remember standing up, saying goodbye, thank you, no, I don't remember anything. I remember getting into the car and sitting down in the passenger seat and put the seat back and close my eyes. I didn't speak to my mother. I don't remember time. I, I, I just went into a whole different world. And the whole ride home, most of that was me talking to God for the first time in over 12 years. And the only thing that kept coming out of my mouth was, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. How could I have been so dumb? I... I asked forgiveness for all of my sins and there are sins that you wouldn't, you wouldn't even allow me to preach if you knew. I, made, I, I asked forgiveness for all of my sins. I asked forgiveness for my friend's sins. I just made up for lost time. But I remember that day, October 30th, 1999, on my way from Ann Arbor, Michigan. I was probably on I-96 now, going through Lansing, passing Lansing, the Grand Rapids by this time. And I, now I'm just there and I'm thinking, Father, I don't know if you can do anything with me. I don't know if you can use me. I don't know if there is hope for me yet, but I, but I make this commitment with you. 
if you call me, if you choose, if you accept me, you can use me to help other young people not go where I went. You call me and I'll go. Listen, be careful of the commitments you make with the Lord. I had no idea less than a year later, he sends a little evangelism team with, headed out by David Ashrick to Grand Rapids, Michigan. And the rest is history. By this time, they had made me young adults leader at the Grand Rapids Central Church. And I, because of that, they, they asked me to be a liaison with this evangelistic group and, and connect with the other area churches. And there was that summer, the summer of 2000 in Grand Rapids, Michigan, there was a mighty r- revival. I call it the Grand Rapids of the Holy Spirit. Literally, I remember sitting there with Mike Talley, John's dad, there in Grand Rapids during this rally, and it just hit me. Wow, this is powerful. There was 120 people that gave their hearts to the Lord. A brand new church was planted in, in North America in the year 2000. I was rebaptized, and I purposed. I remember seeing this, this punk rocker preaching with his whole heart preaching like I'd never heard anyone preach. And I remember thinking to myself, Father, I want to do exactly what that man's doing. Eighteen years later, here we are in Templeton Hills doing exactly the same thing that David Ashrick was doing when I was converted. God is not just an intellectual figment of my idea or understanding. God is not just this theory up of, of something or someone up there. God is real. He's real to me because He had mercy on me, calling me a sinner, the chief of sinners, to ministry. I got to end. But I cannot end without giving you the opportunity this afternoon to make the greatest decision of your life. God has brought you here this morning because He's desperate to have an encounter with you. Who am I? I am a blind man from Cuba. child that he came to this world to say John 3.16 says for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life John 3.17 says for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world here's what that means God knows exactly what you've done he knows just how far you've gone from him and even though he knows even though he knows He says, I didn't come to the world to condemn you. I came to the world that you might have life. He didn't come into the world to condemn the world. But that the world might be saved through him. This morning, God brought you here. Because he's been wanting to have this intimate encounter with you for many years 
God has brought you here in His loving mercy. He's kept you alive. He sustained you. He's guided you. And today, you're here. Because He ordained it. Today, you can make the same decision that I made October 30th, 1999. Today, you can allow Jesus to come into your life. October 30th, 1999. I made it to that visit, an alcoholic. A drug addict, a pack a day smoker, and many other things I'm too ashamed to even think. But I left that visit with hope. God gave me the victory that very day, that very day, over alcohol. That day, when I got home, I threw over $1,000 worth of drugs, flushed it down the, door, down the toilet. That has been one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life. I wouldn't be here if it wouldn't have been for having lost my sight. Some people look at disability as a great limitation. I don't see my blindness as a limitation. I actually see it as a, as a benefit. I thank the Lord that I can't see as good as you. I remember doing Bible work in New York City. And the Bible workers would be afraid to go to the different projects because of the broken windows and the the syringes and, and the evil faces. Well, you know what? None of that bothered me. When they knock on the door and they find one of those, those Muslims or different people with an, with an ornery look, they were terrified. Well, when I knock on the door and they open the door, I was just as happy with them as I was with Grandma. This morning... Jesus is calling you. This morning, Jesus wants you to make a full surrender to Him. This morning, you can stand to your feet and you can say, Father, I come. I come. Just as I am. I give my all to you. If you want to make that decision this morning, won't you come? I invite you to come to the front. As a symbol of the decision and the commitment you make with Jesus, as we sing, would you come? Spirit of the Lord has been working in your life for years. 
today is the day. This is the moment. This is the moment you can't pass by. This is the moment God has been waiting for. For all of your life. This is the day that you give Jesus your heart. Will you do it now? I want to ask Pastor Zach to have this final prayer for us. But if there's someone else who this morning wants to give their heart to Jesus, you don't want to wait until you lose your sight. You don't want to wait until it's a tragedy why not give Jesus your heart today he will take it and he will transform your life and give you an experience you can't even imagine how wonderful it is Pastor Zach Father you're beyond good to us Thank you for opening all of our eyes today, reminding us of how good you are, reminding us of how much we need you, reminding us that we've all been blind in our lives and we desperately need you to open our eyes. Father, here we are. We ask that you would move in every heart in this place. We ask that you would take our hearts, Lord. We're willing. Would you make us willing? Father, would you pour out your Holy Spirit on every person in this place. May no one walk out of here without making a full and entire, complete surrender to you with the assurance that we don't have to have all the answers. We don't have to know where we go from here, but we know this, that he who began a good work in us will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Thank you, Father, for what you've done in Eddie's life. Thank you for the way you've led him. And Father, lead each and every one of us closer to Jesus. Help us to keep our eyes constantly fixed on Jesus, to take time in your word every day. And as we follow you, Father, fill us with more and more of you. I pray this in the precious and holy name of Jesus.